All right, team, welcome back to the Man Talk Show. Connor Beaton here. I have a returning guest who is one of my most downloaded episodes, one of the most popular guests, and honestly, one of the most, I would say, popular figures when it comes to modern day therapeutic concepts, psychological concepts. So joining me today is Dr. Nicole LaPera. You might know her on Instagram or other social media platforms as the holistic psychologist. So Dr. Nicole LaPera was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell University and the New School for Social Research and studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. She is a holistic psychologist whose work addresses the connection between the mind, the body, and the soul, incorporating overall lifestyle and psychological wellness practices. She is the curator or creator, sorry, of the Self Healers Movement, where people from around the world are joining together in community to take healing into their own hands. So with all that said, what do we talk about today? Well, she's got a, a new book out. She initially wrote a book called How to Do the Work, which we talked about in a previous episode. And you might want to just go and explore that. Uh, go check out that episode if you haven't tuned into it before. It's a phenomenal conversation about what does it mean to do healing work? What does it mean to do work to face your past, to heal your trauma, to work through codependency? Uh, her book is phenomenal because in many ways, it provides you with very clear guidance and tools and resources. And today, she has a new book out called How to Meet Yourself, the workbook for self-discovery. So this is a, a very interesting conversation because Dr. Nicole and I actually get into a little bit of a philosophical, spiritual, existential conversation about what is the self. And the way that we do that is by talking about these different modalities, how spirituality, how psychology, how the therapeutic modality looks at the concept of the self, and then what is the work that is needed or necessary in order for us to start to have a deeper sense of who it is we actually are and what it is we actually want and what obstacles we sometimes have to face in order to find a more true, concrete, depth-oriented, authentic version of ourselves. So I really enjoyed this conversation in many ways. Uh, her new book is a workbook, and so it's chock full of things for you to do. So if you're somebody like me that, that likes to get into the sort of like the questions, the answers, the exercises, uh, then this is probably for you. And even if not, this conversation is, is a great one to dive into. So as always, please share this conversation. Please man it forward and share it with somebody that is in your life that you think will enjoy it, that you think will enjoy the dialogue and will want to be a part of it. And uh, without any further delay, with all of that said, please welcome wholeheartedly. My guest today, Dr. Nicole LaPera. All right, Dr. Nicole, how are you doing? Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. I'm doing great. I love that Riverside gives us this countdown. Like it's so climactic, you know, it's like <laughs> five, four. Like I feel like I'm on like the news, you know, just about to go go live or something. I was having a giggle about it myself and wondering if I should quick get a drink of water. Then I had this whole imagining of it going one and I'm live mid drink. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> well, it's been a hot minute since you were on the show. I think I think we spoke, we were like height of the pandemic, I think. It was like real core lockdown mode for most of the world. How has life been since on your end? I'd love to just get like a little update on how things have been over the last year and a half. It's crazy. It was hard even, Connor, for me to locate in time where I think we were. And I think it was right around two, um, in addition to the pandemic that hit us all quite globally. I think it was right around the publication of my first book, uh, How to Do the Work. So the fact that I'm waiting literally one week um, for the official publication so of the new book is mind-blowing to me. So I've been good. I've been busy. And I've been being very conscious and intentional not to allow all of that busyness to be a distraction, um, knowing that that's one of the things that, you know, I know very much from my own childhood, my conditioning, and really applies to even the nature, the content of this current workbook, Meeting Your True Self. I know for me, it's in times like this of busyness that I can, like many of us, go into go, go, go mode and hitting those pauses, make sure that I'm still tending to myself. The being behind the vessel that's putting out all of this work is so, so important. So mm -hmm. I've been busy and 
trying to take moments of pause in the middle of all of it. Yeah, I love that because I think that that's so applicable to a lot of people right now, this sort of go mentality, especially as we you know come into the ending of the year, beginning of the year. Um, I think a lot of that is very applicable. It's funny because I, I just ran a, a weekend, a men's weekend, like about a month ago. And my colleague, his name's uh, Dewey Freeman, and he's been doing Gestalt for like 40 years made an observation and the observation was you seem to attract a lot of very high functioning <laughs> men that have a lot of drama in their past and I was like well shit that you basically just <laughs> described me <laughs> you know so it's like that makes a ton of sense but how do you balance before we get into the sort of the content of the of the book how do you balance the busyness of your life and the being of your life because you have built up this amazing business you've written a couple books you know, you have this wonderful online profile that does a, a tremendous amount for people. I think adds a, a lot of value to people's lives. How do you balance the running the business, the the daily to dos, and the stepping back into being? What does that look like for you? Absolutely. And I was actually just having um, a similar sounding observation, though, in the form of a conversation with a group of friends um, personally who were very much, you know, very achievement based, very driven, have you know, a lot to show for it. And we were having this conversation, looking around at each other, all acknowledging that there is still a part of our core that doesn't feel like even if we've accumulated all of this stuff, we don't feel either worthy of the stuff or it doesn't really make an impact. So, and I think that really speaks to when you're saying, you know, working with high achievers and so many of us, we might have externally this life that's reflecting back, right? We should feel fulfilled. We should feel happy. We should feel all of the things and when we don't, I think in those moments, it can really, for me, at least speaking personally, it, can, it made me wonder for a very long time, what, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling so disconnected? And the reason that I've come to the awareness is, you know, when I'm not taking those moments of pause to, to go into the specifics then of the answer, a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm overstepping my own limits, my own resources, energy that I might not even have available to me to show up. So something that I think is really not very necessarily logical in a lot of ways. It's counterintuitive. That was the word I was looking for, which is how important those moments of pause of being are for our healing. And I see a lot of people even throwing the overachievers aside, a lot of overachieving and healing with this idea that it's endlessly a doing of something, an endless action. And speaking again to this culture that I think externally does validate now offers us endless opportunities to distract ourselves, to achieve. We could do it morning, noon, and night if we wanted to. Um, so in in terms of making sure that we have the resources to be available really does mean pausing. So for me, it's just continuously keeping it top of mind, knowing that my tendency as the world does need things of me, or as there is a part of me that feels very driven and passionate about putting you know, all of these new ideas out into the world. I've really had to teach myself that hitting pause, that healing for most of us, for me included, is a journey of learning how to be in stillness so that when I do then present whatever it is, myself, my work, the workbook to the world that I'm doing so with resources and from a grounded, connected way. So for me, it's again, a daily conversation of intentionality. Oh yes, I do have a being that I need to pause and then making the daily commitment not to just brush by that idea, and actually to embody those pauses throughout whatever is happening. Would you say, because this is something that I've been digging into recently and sort of mulling over, would you say that, and maybe I'll go with you first and then we can talk about socially and people in general, that one of the things that has made you quote unquote successful or have, you know, have these great achievements that you've accomplished is that you directed some of that pain from your past or, or trauma from your past towards something meaningful? Like, is that, it, it, does that feel like an accurate description? Cause I, I think one of the things that as I've observed you over the years, I'm like, what is she doing that is just causing so many people to resonate so deeply with what she's saying? And so it's oftentimes hard to say like, well, this is what's made me successful. And so I'm maybe just asking a more nuanced, uh, elaborate question of like, what do you think has made you so successful in, in the way that you've been successful? I think that's a really, really great question. I can separate out um, kind of the internal driven, agitated energy. That's the way it really kind of lands or I experience it and needing a channel. For as long as I can remember, for me, it was a lot of the 
body feelings of anxiety. I always felt like I had this pent up energy. And to speak to your question, really from early childhood, you know, I was channeled. I was channeled into activities, into after school programs, into outlets. And for me, that was that release valve, giving me something not to only to focus my attention on instead of the swirling, overwhelming thoughts in my mind, overwhelming feelings in my body. If I can focus on the next task at hand and then channel the actual energy into the doing of that task, I think that really kept me moving forward. Now, this is a separate piece I want to offer. That journey and that path for a lot of us led me to exhaustion because it wasn't coming from necessarily, for me at least, an aligned, connected, deeper, purposeful, passionate place, right? I was driving myself into action, turning my attention to all of these things that I was doing, but I wasn't really enacting or living from purpose-based decisions, if that makes sense. So while I do think the way I've coped with my overwhelming energy in my body has helped, I think what has changed for me now is learning how to drop in and making sure that the actions that I am embodying, you know, going into what I'm pursuing now, for lack of a better word, is coming from a deeper place of purpose. Instead of just doing everything because it's available to me and it feels good because it feels like a relief, learning, and that's what translated to that lack of fulfillment, learning how to do things that are deeply meaningful for me has allowed me then to shift. And I think to alchemize is what you're describing. Now I can allow myself this deeper pain to be focused on actions that are in alignment with my deeper ones, my deeper curiosities. And what I now believe is my purpose here. Mm, I love that because it's almost like turning that pain into a, a purpose in some way, shape, or form, or giving it a function, which you know, all the in IFS, all the parts of us want that, right? All the parts of us want to be contributive in some way, shape, or form yes. to our higher self. And so do you think you're talking about this energy that you had in the body? And I certainly understand that because <laughs> I I was just you know, I was the classic class clown and ADHD mm-hmm. and taking Ritalin in, in, you know, elementary school. I was like one of the first guinea pigs, I think, on Ritalin in Canada. And, and so there was this notion that I just had too much energy. Do you think that everyone has an abundance of energy that they need to learn how to deal with? Or is, it, is there something specific about trauma and abuse, neglect, abandonment, this, these, these sort of events that can happen in our life? that produces more energy in the body that needs to be dealt with? I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah, I think it's a really, really great question. And I really often am simplifying a lot of these concepts. And I think universally, humans are energetic beings. So we all are you know, made of, for lack of a better word, energy to some extent. So we all have it inside of us and we're a conductor in a sense. We're always interacting with the energies around us. And now here's where our environment you know, begins to play and including environments of generations that came before us, because we do now know, especially when we're talking about dealing with the energy of our current environments, usually in the form of stress, we now know that we can be impacted by previous generations down to our genetics or our epigenetics, how our DNA, how we're expressing ourselves, even how some of our neurology develops. So while we all are born with the capacity to have an energetic connection to the world around us, What does, I think, affect all of us differently is our ability to deal with or to tolerate different degrees of stressful energy. And if we didn't have a safe environment, if we didn't have resources or have our needs consistently met, if we didn't have an attuned caregiver who could help us when things began to feel overwhelming and create that safety in us, then we create a situation of trauma where there is simply too much energy or overwhelming sensations in the body. And now I'm left to do what any human will do, which is adapt. We will find a way to channel, tolerate, disconnect, maybe even from our energy, though we all have a different degree then of energy and ability to tolerate energy and our energetic resources. So um, we all, like I said, are constitutionally the same, but our choices, our environments, generations that came before us. And then even again, our hardware that is impacted by all of that impacts our ability to channel or to tolerate different degrees of energy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I asked the question because like my wife and I have had fundamentally different upbringings. You know, she was up at five o'clock in the morning, you know, in elementary, her parents would wake her up German lesson first thing in the morning, violin mm-hmm. lesson before school, 
And, you know, I was like, drag my ass out of bed, <laughs> have a Costco chocolate chip muffin, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then send my ass off to school. And so I didn't really have structure implemented in my life as a, as a child to direct some of the energy outside of like playing mm-hmm. sports, you know? And so I think when I look back, a lot of my substance use and, and addictive behaviors are a byproduct of me just having this intense energy in me and having no real structure or outlet to put it into in a healthy way. And so would you say that your, your upbringing supported you in directing some of that energy or what were some of the incremental steps that you learned along the way? You know, like were there spiritual practices were there daily meditation practices? Was like, how did you start to direct that energy in a conducive way once you realized, like, oh, this is just causing me to burn out when I'm directing it all into just doing constantly? Yeah. And so I think to speak to the point of the impact of my environment, um, my early environment very much validated it. Like I said, it was my mom who had me in every after school program. And according to even her professed, you know, we have you going seven days a week or you have us going seven days a week is the language right, that she would use. So while there was kind of a channeling that was initiated very much, of course, though, with my expressed interest, I want to do art, I want to do dance. And within a week, I was signed up for those. Um, So there was that degree of structure. But I giggled when you said dragging your ass out of bed and, you know, eating kind of whatever sugary product it was, because there was also in my family a lack of structure. I didn't have a bedtime. I could very much eat. For me, it was enemins. Um, There were these, you know, kind of treat-like cakes um, first thing in the morning, I would have a soda, a Coca-Cola, and an Enemins for breakfast. And so while, again, my mom was present and there was some degree of security of structure, there was also a lack thereof. So outside of learning and being validated for these achievements in this doing, I very much was, and not feeling safe because of the overwhelming stress in my home, to share with my mom, my family, my dad of what was actually going on in my life. I was left to deal with just developmental stresses, stresses living in a city um, on my own. So what that then Mm -hmm. looked like very early on, I too discovered, you know, smoking weed and drinking. I think I was somewhat like 12 years old and, you know, being very secretive, not really sharing much with my family, just going out as I like to claim and coming in at late hours because, again, I didn't have a degree of structure and translating for me into all of these other ways, in addition to the validated ways that my mom was directing me to channel my energy, I very much had other things that I was doing. So Mm. the biggest wake-up call for me is understanding that a life of validation from someone else, from my mom, from the world around me, that's like, oh, Nicole, you're successful, right, doesn't necessarily translate into a fulfilling or even a connected life. Again, if even that has come from an adaptation. So while it does look like it was, you know, something great that my mom helped and served me and it was an outlet of sorts and it was, it became over time my only way to feel okay. You know, grabbing for the alcohol that then I did drink, you know, very consistently throughout my 20s into my early 30s became again that way to deal with all of the accumulating energy. So to the specifics then were not only awareness, you know, this life of doing for other people, of seeking this endless achievement isn't going to make you feel worthy. What's going to make you feel worthy is actually showing up in care of yourself. Seeing all the ways I've overstepped my limits, that doesn't make me feel worthy. I've lived that lifetime of that. So awareness was a huge, big part of my journey, but then it was the daily commitment, like you're saying, to those changes in my lifestyle, to making sure that for me, it starts first thing in the morning while I wake up, as we all do, to an endless array of things I can do, to-do lists on my phone, emails I could answer. My commitment to myself is really not going into work mode first thing in the morning. It means taking a moment of silence, taking some moments with my body. For me, learning how much stress energy I had pent up from all of those years of not really releasing it fully, not really allowing it to come out, made me so tense in my muscles. So daily stretching and movement is incredibly, incredibly important. Breath work then became became a daily commitment. So all of these things that I'm sharing really began for me, not only in acknowledging that I am a person you know, behind this role that I've been pushing myself to strive for for so long, but then I'm a person in a body. So for me, those were the biggest foundational choices, becoming aware that I have to care for this self and then living in those actions of care, which for me began with the body. 
Yeah, I love that. I appreciate you sharing that. It was, it's funny as you were talking about those cakes in the first thing in the morning. I got a memory of. Do you did you have Rice Krispies? Rice Krispies yes. and yeah, yeah. So I like uh, the cocoa ones. I like chocolate yeah, yeah. everything. So it would be chocolate <laughs> Rice Krispies for me. Thank you with chocolate milk. Then at the end, a drink down. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I got a memory of me as, as a kid. I would put Rice Krispies in, milk in. And then like three tablespoons of raw sugar. Yes, of course. On, on top of that. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh Lord, like no wonder I was just bouncing off the walls. And but it's it's interesting because over the last number of years, I've just gotten completely sober, not because I had one specific addiction, but because I sort of tested out with a lot of these addictions. And it's been interesting how much work I've had to put into regulating my body and system, my mind, my energy levels, because I do notice that I have an abundance sometimes where I'm like, oh, I really could just keep building and working and doing. And so body practices, breath work, as you're talking about, have been substantial. I just want to have one more question before we dive in to the book, which is I think that you've done a really good job of disseminating some of these larger concepts and constructs within the psychological field and breaking them down into a way that's manageable and digestible for people. I am curious as to what other attributes, what other things have, from your perspective, allowed you to be successful in the way that you have online. Because it's not easy to communicate some of these things to the everyday person that doesn't have the language or the background. So I'm curious about what else do you think has made you um, successful in bringing some of these things to, to the sort of the mass I think, you know, really being intentional about the language and the communication, because what I have seen is, you know, often most of what I'm saying, if not all of what I'm saying, has been said before in a different way. I've read about a lot of the concepts that I talk about, you know, day to day in many a different book um, and many a different theorists, you know, studied many a different way, said many a different way. And the thing that I found lacking on my own journey was how impractical some of the conversation around these concepts have historically been, right? They can just remain conceptual. We can read about them in a book and not really know, okay, well, what does that mean? I'll use ego, for instance. I mean, the ego has been written about. I can't even imagine how many books or how many books the ego is mentioned in, if not written solely about in and of itself. But I know for me, for a lot of us, when we read that, it just seems like an idea. Well, what does ego mean in my day-to-day life, right? How can Mm. I see my ego? How can I work with my ego? So something that I think has been incredibly important and always top of mind is communication, is understanding that a lot of these things aren't translatable, aren't communicated in a way that then allows them to be applied practically. Also keeping in mind that a large part of the community, um, even within my self-healer circle, the membership option, over 50% of the community is living outside of the United States. So keeping in terms in terms of communication top of mind, a lot of the people that are very much universally resonating, I think that's one part of this too, is the concepts I'm talking about are universally relatable. It doesn't matter where you're living or what access to services, knowing that a lot of people living outside of this, the States here don't have access to services. Though what is being spoken about, again, if spoken about in an understandable, translatable, practical way, does really join us universally. So that's been, I think, what has kept um, the content so relevant for so long is that everyone, no matter who you are, is seeing a part of themselves. And again, keeping the intention for me and for us here as a team to make sure that we are always communicating in a way that can be understandable for the most of us. I've often found, and this is just an observation, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but externally it seems like how I would categorize your work is almost like psycho-spiritual. There's a deep-rooted, researched psychological element, but then there's also this wonderful element of spirit and soul. And I think that oftentimes that gets overlooked maybe in your work sometimes. Because when I view your work and I talk to you and I engage with you, I'm like, oh, here's a very deeply spiritual person. Is that true or am I just like making my own shit up here? <laughs> no, you're you're very, very accurate though. It's funny, Connor, because even you know, hearing that question, there was a version of me in my 20s who would have rejected any assessment of spirituality, of religion, again, because the religious system that I grew up in, which was very much Roman Catholic, 
wasn't, you know, something that felt really resonating for me. So for a very long time, I very much rejected it any engagement. While I did, you know, become interested and learned about, I think I took a class in college of Eastern religions. Um, it, nothing really kind of resonated. I was a scientist at heart. If I couldn't see it validated in science or the science, at least that I was fed in the system that I was in, I didn't believe it. Um, so as of now, you know, kind of really peeling back all of my layers and really attuning to, again, even the reality I just spoke about a couple minutes ago that what we are at our core is more undefinable. It is energetic. And actually there is science out there that is learning how somewhat to study these much more indefinable, indescribable aspects that many of us, if we do feel much more comfortable saying words around spirituality, will land on our our soul, our essence, right? That indescribable thingness that makes us who we are, that makes me different from who you are. So absolutely now. I'm very aware that I'm inhabiting a body. I very much have a physical aspect of my existence. Even talking, you know, thinking about this new workbook, meeting your authentic self, right? There isn't a physical place necessarily or a marking that we can go and be like, oh yes, check, check, check. This is my authentic self. Even that, peeling back all of those layers to attune to, there are messages, there are inner instincts there are images, visuals, urgings. You know, we each have a different variety of how we get messaging. But again, all of that does come from somewhat more of an indescribable spiritual soul type place than mm. anything I think that I was seeking for a very long time. <laughs> well, yeah. So what's interesting, you know, I'm a huge Jungian proponent and he talks about the self. And I think that many psychological endeavors, you know, ACT also gets into the self and where it fits in within the persona. How would you start to put some language around what the self is? Because your book, How to Meet Yourself, I think is a, a really great way for people to start to get into like, who am I really at my core? And what does that mean? And alignment and coherence internally. But how do you start to define what the self is? Because that can be huge and ambiguous and <laughs> yes. and it could go in a number of different directions. So I'm just going to leave that at your front door and, uh, and let you go from go with that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, and it, it is really big because I think when we're really trying to define, operationalize what the self is, I mean, it's everything from the, those inner pings that alert us when our body needs something, right? Acknowledging that we all are all in a different body, a different energy system with differing needs. So the self can be everything from the practical, right, ping that I get at a certain hour of day that tells me my body is hungry, that no one might else be getting that ping around me. Um, it's, again, what nutritionally my body desires, how I function in terms of sleep, same thing. So the self can be everything from the practical, right, what is my body telling me it needs because our body will deliver you messages. You'll begin to feel a fatigue in your muscles when you do need to hit stop. Even if your mind is telling you all of the reasons you need to keep going, you'll start to learn that distinction that your body will tell you when it needs rest. It will tell you when it has that pent up energy and moving very much like you. I've learned that there are moments where I don't want to sit still, where I do have an energy and I do need to use it. And maybe it's not doing or reconnecting with my purpose or my passion. Maybe it's just cleaning the house. Mm. Right. And so Using that as an outlet, dropping in, includes all of that self-energy, peeling back another layer. It includes what are our interests? You know, what makes me curious? What lights me up? You know, very much different probably than what I would hear if you were to answer those questions. Um, what are my ideas, my thoughts? That's our source of creativity, our, our imagination. All of that really goes into what makes us us and learning how to drop in, learning how to attune to this physical presence, this body, like I was sharing, to learn when its sensations are giving you indicators that our body is having a need. Learning again, being able to explore. I mean, there was a time in my 20s, I couldn't tell you how I wanted to spend my time objectively, meaning like what I wanted to do on Saturday, let alone purpose, passion. Again, I read about all of those in books for a very long time. Connor, if I'm honest, I thought that that genetic chip that gifts us with our purpose and passion must have missed me because I didn't have that ability to attune to what I really wanted. And I learned over time, it was nothing that genetically missed me. Of course, if anyone's listening that doesn't feel very purposeful or driven or creative or imaginative, all of these things that I'm telling you do exist within you. What I discovered for myself, the reason why I wasn't connected to this self space 
was because my body was so dysregulated. My needs were so undermet or inconsistently met for so long. Like I was said, I was overstepping so many of my limits that my body was actually locked in survival mode. And when we are in survival mode, purpose, passion, imagination, those are not what my focus needs to be. Quite literally, my body is operating on a minute by minute survival, literally, basis. So self, huge, big concept. For a lot of us, it is just a concept. You might even be shaking your head that you too, you know, we're not gifted the, the chip of a purpose, of a passion, of creativity. And again, this is why I speak to the underlying reason for so many of us, because we feel shameful. We feel broken. Um, when we can reconnect with ourselves, then we regain, not immediately, of course, overnight, but the more we, and very intentionally, that workbook is structured, we start with the body right? Really learning how to attune, connect with our individual unique bodies so that we can become more consistent meeting their needs and peeling back the layer, learning our emotional world. How do we navigate our emotions, clearing out the space and the safety so that over time I can start to hear the messages. Oh, things that are of interest start to become more clear to me. I feel safer pursuing them. I start to have ideas that maybe I do want to speak or create into existence. And now I'm embodying right, that space of self. And just even hearing myself say that, I think I want to end this question on how important that embodiment is, right? Self, ideas, concepts, creating the space to reconnect with this self energy is the process of embodying that or of enactioning in that way. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. So the journey to understanding the self, I remember I, I had, um, when I first started working with one of my my first mentor, Bernard, him sort of doing that irritating and wonderful thing of like, <laughs> who is Connor Beaton? He was like this little French <laughs> French Canadian, right? He's like, who is Connor Beaton? I listed off a bunch of stuff and he's like, okay, but who are you? You know, and then got more serious and I was like, uh, uh, okay. And then sort of peeling the layers away to to sort of get to a sense of self. And so who we are, our self, is larger than the things that we like to do, the things that we wear, you know, all those sort of like materialistic external things <clears throat> or the things that we like or prefer or et cetera. It's much more than that, but includes those things. Is that true? Is that an, accurate? Ab absolutely, because we can then learn how to right live in that self-expression. It can translate to, to the clothes I wear, to the way I wear my hairstyle. There's a whole section um, in the book in terms of self-expression and beginning to build that bridge and a lot of a sensor in those areas. We don't wear certain things that we would maybe want to wear or don't feel comfortable in them for many different external reasons. So I couldn't agree more that they can become connected um, and we can learn how to live in alignment. And many of us, again, are self-censoring, aren't being ourselves to those around us, aren't wearing the clothes, the hairstyles, or presenting our bodies in the way that we might want to or be, you know, driven to because then we're imagining how it will be received and then we're preventing or censoring our stuff. So the two can absolutely be connected. And my hope um, for this workbook is that it really does provide that roadmap of, and I think something else that I want to offer here, going back to the topic of energy that we were talking about a bit earlier and just hearing the question. And I probably would have wanted to strangle was it Bernard's neck asking who Nicole right. is. And I don't yeah. know the answer to that. Well, like, I was so, right, like so 27 years old. I'm like, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It feels so frustrating <laughs> and so shameful. What do you mean? Like who I, who I am? I don't know who I am. And it, that deeper place, right. Knowing how to just observe ourselves, be who we are when we're not in that action. That I think is the most difficult place. We have a, a, a mind even that seeks to define right? Who we are, how we are showing up. And the reality, going back to this concept of energy too, is we are evolving. So even if we continue or have this idea of who we are at say age in our twenties, we're an evolving being. Our circumstances are going to change. That idea or perception of who we are or the meaning that we make or how we profess ourselves to be might be very different as we age into our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm. So again, I think that's a, a, a reality that a lot of us as humans struggle um, and when we reconnect with that evolving space, then we can give ourselves the possibility to continue to live in alignment. My concern always is if I define myself in my 20s, what happens if and when I change, when I'm not the person that I thought I was or when I evolve out of being that person? So many of us get ourselves locked 
in our identities because it feels so uncomfortable to acknowledge that we are quite uncertain. We might and we probably very well evolve into tomorrow. And that's a great thing. It also, though, brings up the difficulty that all of us humans have with the unknown, not knowing what happens next when we are this new being. I could not agree more with what you're saying. And I love what you're saying. And what really stood out for me was a deeper understanding of why I have such a uh, resistance and rejection of like these frameworks, you know, like the, not to diss them, right? It's not to diss them because I think that they help sometimes, but like the Enneagram stuff Mm -hmm. and the personality type stuff. And because I see a lot of people get locked and cemented into this is who I am and I can never go outside of this construct. And it's almost like, you know, Alan Watts talked about spiritual evolution, that the ego just comes up with you for the ride, you know? And so we have to be aware that it's that it's there and along the way. And it's trying to, to concretize itself constantly, right? It's trying to cement itself constantly. And so we can get locked into these structures of like, well, I'm a Enneagram this and personality right. that and ENFJ this. And yes. it's like, okay, but what is that? Like, where are you in those structures truly? <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> I was just going to chuckle out of that. I'm cautious of and, and very aware that I can oftentimes go into much more like existential and esoteric mm-hmm. leanings than this. So if I do, you just keep bringing me back into the tangible and tactical, okay? Um, but why start with the body? Why does all this work for you begin with the vessel that we're in? Yeah, I, the vessel that we're in is is our first source of interaction with the environments um, in which we're living. And the part of the body that is so structurally, foundationally important, I've come to learn um, because this wasn't really necessarily taught to me or highlighted in the way that it is a foundational focus for me and my work now, which is our nervous system. Um, our nervous system is that first interface between me and the environment around me. And because so very few of us had, you know, grew up in safe, secure environments where our needs were consistently wet, met our emotional needs in particular. We didn't have that attuned caregiver. We didn't have someone teach our bodies quite literally, not only how to meet their own needs by first meeting them for us, but teach our body how to deal with stress. While we all are pre-wired with a nervous system when we're born, our nervous systems need another nervous system to co-regulate with or to come back into safety when they become dysregulated, distressed. When an infant, say, is crying is usually the major indicator of that. So when we don't have the safety in our environment to even return to, when we don't have an attuned caregiver to help us come from overwhelmed, dysregulated back into safety to make sense of what was going on for us emotionally to then over time teach us how to make sense of our own emotions and deal with them, our nervous system usually never falls back into that safety. And we become and we live in a cycle of dysregulation. And why is this important? Because it's living in our body. Well, actually, our bodies are in endless communication with our mind. And one of the biggest sources of information that our mind is taking in to determine what we're going to do next, how we're interpreting the world. It really plays a role in everything we're doing from how we're making sense to how we're showing up in the world around us. And one of the biggest sources of the information is the messages our body is given. So if our body is continuously telling us our mind that we're not safe to be who we are, that we're not safe to share this, just piggybacking on this conversation, this authentic aspect of ourself, that we're not safe, our mind is going to always believe our body. Our body's messages of not being safe will override it and we'll snap right back into that survival mode. Like I was saying, where purpose, passion, imagination, creativity are not a priority survival is. And then we usually snap into some adapted, conditioned response some way. And often it looks a little bit immature. And I'm using the word really to describe a developmental time where we lacked the maturity to deal in a healthy adult way, where many of us lacked the ability to rely on others for support. And we respond in very reactive ways. And when we're reacting to the world around us, now we're really disconnected from that deeper space. We're, again, cycling, just trying to keep ourselves safe enough to continue. And we can't have conversations like pausing, like stopping, like tuning into what I really want in that moment. Likely, we're going to just keep ourselves going and tolerating our stress, our overwhelm in the exact way that we once did, which usually, again, is disconnected from ourself, from what we really want and what from what we really need to happen or the support that we really deserve to have in those moments of overwhelming stress. 
So good. And you know, what's interesting is as you were talking, I got this sort of hit of how interesting our culture is right now in the last couple of years in the sense that there seems to be this green lighting of immature and childish behavior, you know, like it's okay from politicians, from people in the media, from activists. I mean, just on all fronts, it seems to be like we have really allowed this immature behavior to become the norm of how we freaking interact with each other, you know? And it's, and it's, uh, it's really interesting to see the lack of maturity as we enter into social spaces, online spaces, political conversations, climate conversations, medical conversations. It's really wild. And so I don't want to go down that rabbit hole um, too much, but I think what you're saying is that we do revert to these very childlike, immature um, responses when we're unaware or we feel threatened or we feel unsafe, et cetera. Which brings me to the question, and the book is, how to, you know, how to meet the self and how to meet yourself, but the self within essentially, what do you say to people who are like, well, I don't like myself. So why would I, why the hell would I want to meet myself? I don't even like me or what I know about myself. I don't like me. How do you address that framework and, and perspective? Yeah, it's a really, really great. And I'm sure a very common question because even back to that group that I was sharing with you in the beginning, um, very high achievers, and we're all sitting around and kind of acknowledging again that at our core, we all have those things that we don't like or the language we were using is that we don't feel worthy around. And I think, again, the reality of it is a lot of us, you know, might avoid a journey like this with this idea, and I'm using that word very intentionally, that we don't like ourselves. An idea based in experience of probably being shamed, of not liking ourselves, of having, you know, experiences around us that might validate how unworthy or how shameful we are, though I can make a case that, again, all of that was impacted by those early environments, by how our caregivers showed up. So again, going back to this concept of the idea that you don't like yourself, I'm not trying to invalidate. There might be very deep-rooted shame. You might feel very badly. All of those feelings are real, but I believe that that belief began as an idea implanted from how your environment made you feel. Right? Again, not even blaming those others. Circumstances happened in my environment. People showed up or didn't show up however they showed up or didn't show up based on likely past environments that they were conditioned in. And ultimately, because back to this developmental immaturity that all of our brains share in childhood, we don't have the ability to zoom out like a mature adult to look at all of these different nuanced factors and complexity and know our parents' past and what they're really out doing and how it really doesn't reflect anything on us. Their inability to be consistently in care of us has absolutely and never did have anything to do with us at all. Yet when we don't have that ability to zoom out and understand things from this complex you know, human experience, we will land on because all of our brains are desperately seeking to make sense of what's happening around us, even from that very young age. So when we have a caregiver who's not physically present, who left the home, left the family, is you know off working all the time or abusing substances is unavailable, or maybe a caregiver who is present, like my mom, who didn't have the space or ability to shift out of her own survival mode, to be present, to be curious, to attune to me, the different being that I am, the only way that my brain and all of our brains will make sense of that absence of consistently met needs is, well, it must be something to do with me. Because not only do I have now a, a sensical story that is the only one I can have because of my developmental immaturity, I have a semblance of control. Now, if I just limit, do less of, or show more of whatever it is that my circumstances require or I imagine they require of me to maintain that connection, this is when I will begin to suppress my authentic self, who I really am in favor of those core connections that are developmentally necessary. And then I carry with it though, and this is why a lot of us end up with this idea of I'm not worthy, I don't want to meet myself, I'm so shameful, that we are inherently flawed, damaged, inherently not worthy, not lovable ourself, which is again why I offer this idea that that, be, that is an idea. That was your best interpretation given the circumstances that you did not have control over, trying to make some semblance of control and adaptation that you could then rely on yourself, you believe you're not worthy. You believe you don't want to get to know yourself. But that self, again, is so colored in conditioning 
what you're likely even judging is how you had to adapt the things you've done to make yourself safe. So I can make a case to end on is that we don't really, most of us even well into our adulthood, don't really know ourselves. We know our conditioning. The concept that I roll out in the book is this idea of habit self, talking again from our physical habit self to all of our mental habit selves, which include the ego, the shadow. I know all of your youngin, right? So listeners will probably know those words. All of that is not our self. We can become observant of all of the impact that that has of this idea that we might have shameful experiences that are all very real. But until we begin this journey of really peeling back all of these layers of the onion, most of us don't really know ourselves. We only know our conditioning. Mm, so, so, so good. I wish we had hours together because there's so many questions I want to ask you and talk to you about, but maybe how we'll sort of round the base to home base here to wrap us up is what does the authentic self look like, sound like, feel like? If, if you can give some sort of description of the territory that you enter in when you begin to touch that authentic self, I would love that. And then what are some of the steps that maybe individuals can take that you talk about in the book to move closer towards that sense of authentic self? I think the first word uh, that comes to mind is easeful. This idea that when we are connected to us, all of that filtering, right, disintegrates, goes away. Easeful in this sense of I have an idea, I have a thought, and I maybe feel comfortable to share it with someone right? I have a feeling and I feel comfortable to be, to express um, back to this idea of clothing, right? And how am I presenting myself? I have none of those sensors in place. So how I am, how I feel very quickly and easily, easefully reflects in how I'm being in the world. And that to me translates number one to that idea or that concept of easeful, contrasting that with all of the different resistances, right? So many of us, even resistant, so repressed that we're not even connected, to our body, right? We're so disconnected. We're resisting so deeply that we're not even aware of what's going on, right? And then we have the layer of suppression where we're kind of aware and we're not comfortable, right? That's a resistance, right? We have all this clenching, now all of this shifting of our behavior and action, right? That's not easeful. That's a resistance-based approach. So for me, it becomes the conversation of, can I live in ease? Can I be comfortable with reconnecting with these deeper wants, needs, maybe even surface level, you know, physical needs that are that are needing to be expressed, met in any given moment. And can I just easefully embody those choices? And of course, there's no specific easy roadmap, though my hope is that the new workbook offers that journey, beginning in the body, learning how to even notice if my body is sending those signals that I'm not safe to have these moments of stillness, of silence, of pause. And then learning all of the different ways our ego and these early stories are coloring how my body is reacting in these moments. And then over time, gifting myself with those opportunities, beautifully full circle, just like I described at the beginning of our talk, that is still top of mind for me, right? I'm a person, I'm in a body, I need moments of pause. Making that part of our conversation then allows me to be easeful, to have those days where my body is telling me or those moments I am fatigued, not having all of the worry or all of the censoring where I don't feel safe just saying, you know what, I need to hit pause and that's okay world around me. Mm. And then shifting again into action in those moments where it's in those aligned relationships in my purpose, in my passion, and ultimately always giving me choice, right? Choice to acknowledge that I am an evolving energetic being that I actually don't know how it's going to feel to be in this body as it enters, you know, it's late forties, it's fifties, it's sixties. And reminding myself that I always have that opportunity to rediscover by dropping in. Mm. It almost sounds as though what you're saying, and again, like please correct me if I'm wrong or or alter it in, in whatever way feels accurate. It sounds like what you're saying is that the self, our authentic self, is a little bit outside of the rational construct that we can often get stuck in, right? Of this is who I am unequivocally, and this is how this is how things are going to go, and this is what I want, and this is what I need. That there is maybe a part of us in there, the self can be found in there, but a larger part of it is outside of the rational construction that we often get bogged down by. Is that accurate? Oh, it's it's so accurate, Connor, and even speaks to how our self speaks, right? This concept of intuition, right? Our inner mm-hmm. instincts. So many of us do look in our conscious mind for the language, the word. How do I describe myself? How do I know when this is telling me yes or no? 
so many of us, it isn't, or for most of us, I should say, we're not going to find it in that logical mind and the sentences or the word structures that we're looking for. It pings us in, in concepts, in, in sensations, in ideas, right, that are not the repetitive thoughts in our mind. Some of us get a visual or an image might just seemingly out of nowhere pop up. It's sensory-based. It's body-based. And again, if we really want to simplify the brain, which is very complex, and there's many different areas dealing with many different things at once, when we're in our logical, right, left brain trying to make sense, describe who we are, or even define and listen to our intuition, we're going to miss the mark. We have to learn how to drop into this more right-brained, more sensory system that speaks with a different language. And again, when we look up to the thoughts in our mind, which so many of us are doing, we are going to struggle to find the words to define ourselves. Or if we do find the words, going back to the beautiful wisdom you shared, we're going to box ourselves in. Who we are, again, is back to that indefinable energy. We might be somewhat able to describe how we're feeling, how we're doing in a given moment, what we want or what we're thinking, but words really don't do the system that we're speaking about, the energetic being that we are, the justice, and can even be quite, I think, frustrating and limiting. Mm, so good. So good. Well, I want to honor your time. Unfortunately, that's what we've got for today, but I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you on the other side of this book launching. For everyone that's out there listening, How to Meet Yourself, the workbook for self-discovery is live. I think this is going to be coming out as, yes. as it's live because the launch date is on... December 6th, one week from actually where we're filming it now. Yeah, boom. So it, so it will be live right now. Uh, we'll have the links cool. in the show notes. It is available everywhere. Don't forget to share this conversation, this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Maybe this is a conversation that you can listen to with a friend, with a partner, with a family member and have some discussion about. It might be a, a very worthy, very fruitful conversation. So Dr. Nicole, thank you so much as always for being on the show. Connor, thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor. I love having conversations with you. So thank you. Likewise, likewise. And until next time, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 